Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. In this week's show, rising oil and commodity prices and the threat to the global economic recovery, Northern Ireland's water debacle, and an update about BP. You're listening to Energy Weekly with me, Sylvia Pfeiffer. We start this week's show with cost inflation in commodities and a warning from the International Energy Agency that high oil prices are a potential threat to the global economic recovery. The high prices are also putting pressure on the OPEC oil cartel to increase its production. Joining me in the studio to discuss this and other challenges the rising commodity prices pose is David Blair, the FT's energy correspondent, and Javi Blas, the FT's commodities editor. I wondered if I could kick off with you, David. Um, we had a story in today's paper quoting Fatih Birol, the chief economist of the IEA, warning that the high oil prices are a potential threat to economic recovery in developing countries. And the flip side, I guess, of that is also that he's saying it's also bad news for the oil exporters, notably OPEC, because they need to have sort of healthy clients buying their oil. And I just wondered if you could talk us through that dilemma that OPEC now has, if they do have a dilemma at all. Yes, it's clearly not in OPEC's interests to damage the world economy or to create a situation where other forms of energy, renewables and so forth, become more economically viable. So they have previously talked about uh, an oil price in the range of $70 to to $80 as being the most comfortable for the world economy as a whole. And it's very clear that prices are now significantly above that range. So on the face of it, there would be a significant case for OPEC to act to bring oil prices down to a more comfortable level. But they've just had a meeting at which they said emphatically that they thought there was no reason to act. Uh, so this was back in December. This was in December in, in Quito, in Ecuador. And at present, they've got no further meetings scheduled until the 2nd of June in Vienna. They could, of course, have an emergency meeting in the interim, but there isn't any sign of that being in the offing just yet. So it's very unclear as to whether OPEC will heed the IEA's concerns. And there's been a, a bit of a change in the, um, I was going to say leadership of OPEC, but Iran's sort of taken over this year in terms of running OPEC, is that right? Does yes. that make a difference at all? As of January the 1st, Iran assumed the presidency of OPEC for the whole of this year. It's the first time, I believe, that Iran has ever held the presidency of OPEC. Now, of course, that's a ceremonial position. It's an administrative position. It doesn't confer any particular power or authority on Iran. But it does introduce a complicating factor. If, for example, some OPEC members were to press for an emergency meeting uh, in order to take steps to reduce the oil price. It's quite possible that Iran would resist that. They may not be able to resist the combined weight of other OPEC members, particularly Saudi Arabia, but they would perhaps be able to impose a delay. So it's another complicating factor. And you have to bear in mind that Iran has said publicly that it prefers an oil price of $100 a barrel. Uh, So it's fair to assume that Iran probably isn't worried by the present increase in oil prices. If I can bring in Javier Blasso, a commodities editor here. Oil prices dropped a little bit yesterday. Where do you think oil prices are going to go this year? Well, it seems that until very recently, the physical traders that they 
for sure have the best information in, in the market, they thought that prices were going to remain uh, below $90. More recently, the consensus is shifting a bit higher and uh, people on the market think that it's just a question of, of timing, not a, 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 rather than it's, it's more a when rather than if oil prices will hit at some point during the year the, the barrier of $100. doesn't seem that the market is strong enough or the global economy is strong enough yet to push oil prices above $100 for any any long time. But it seems that we are going to be with higher prices than otherwise we were thinking only a couple of months ago. And the main reason for that is that demand continues to be very strong, surprisingly strong. We closed last year, 2010, with the second highest in annual increase in oil demand over the last 30 years. And that's quite surprising, taking into account that the global economy is still referred as fragile. So China, sorry. It is mainly China, but not only China. It's a lot of other emerging countries, and you could name any country outside the United States, like Europe, from Vietnam to Saudi Arabia to Brazil to India, that they are consuming a lot more. But even in Europe and the United States in particular, oil consumption has been improving over the last few months, and now it's showing uh, signs of, of a revival. It seems that it's a, a global revival, but absolutely led by emerging countries in Asia. And in commodity prices, generally, there's quite a bit of cost inflation going on at the moment. You had a story earlier this week about wheat prices um, in the UK soaring. Um, and I think the UN today has come out and warned about food prices, cost inflation there. Um, what, what, what do you think is happening there? Well, we have a, a spike overall on the on the commodities market. It's not just oil, but food prices are at an all-time high, according to the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization. And the cost of several metals is very high, including copper that is trading at an all-time high, steel prices are moving higher. So uh, what we are going to see, and and it, it seems today that inflation, who has been absent for the last two years as a main economic concern, is slowly but surely coming back. And central banks at some point will need to start thinking what they are going to do with, with rising inflation. I don't think that central banks are going to act and increase uh, interest rates because commodity prices are moving up. But it's for sure going to create a dilemma for some central banks, particularly in emerging countries where we are beginning to see rates of inflation closer to 10% in countries such as India. That, that's going to be a, a problem. The, the other question, uh, more generally on food, food prices, is whether we are going to have political instability. We saw in 2007-2008 food riots. And the combination of rising food prices and rising oil prices is putting some governments in a difficult situation because they subsidize the cost of both food crops and, and oil. We saw in Bolivia recently that the government was under huge pressure to reverse an increase, a big increase on both food and fuel prices. And we're going to see that more happening in, in Asia and, and Africa this year. Thanks very much. We'll keep watching this this as a topic and also to see whether OPEC does call any sort of emergency meeting before June. Let's move closer to home and the water shortages in Northern Ireland. David, if I can come back to you, can you just tell us what happened over the Christmas period when I think thousands of people in Northern Ireland were left without running water? Yes, that's right. Although I should say, first of all, that a statement from Northern Ireland Water today says that as of today, everyone in Northern Ireland is getting the required amount of water. So the shortages are officially over. Uh, But over the Christmas period, you had up to 40,000 individual households and businesses being cut off uh, at various points. And in some cases, people were without water in their homes for as long as 11 days. So it was a very serious situation indeed. And the origins of that situation are quite deep rooted. But today, 
day, the chief executive of Northern Ireland Water may well pay the price. Uh, It has already been reported that he will be uh, asked to resign. Why has Northern Ireland had these problems? I and mean, we've also would have suffered from the cold weather over the Christmas holidays. I still had running water at home. You know, I live, I live in, in, in England. So just, just why specifically Northern Ireland? Well, everyone agrees on the uh, fundamental cause, which is there's been a significant lack of investment in Northern Ireland's water infrastructure for many decades. Where there's a disagreement over is over why that was ever allowed to occur. The Northern Ireland politicians stress the fact that Northern Ireland had to cope with the troubles for decades, and so resources were diverted to security instead of infrastructure, which is certainly part of the explanation. But there's more to it than that. Northern Ireland runs its water business in the completely different way from most of the rest of the UK. First of all, Northern Ireland water is state-owned, whereas, of course, in England, water is entirely in the hands of private companies. And secondly, Northern Ireland water doesn't actually issue separate bills. Um, You pay for your water in Northern Ireland through your local council taxes, which means that, relatively speaking, people in Northern Ireland pay rather less for their water than the rest of us, which means there's less money around for investment. So the shortage of cash for renewing infrastructure isn't simply down to the existence of the troubles for many decades. It's also due to the fact that consumers in Northern Ireland have been paying a lot less than you and I. If the reports this morning are correct that the chief executive is going to pay the price, he's maybe just more of a scapegoat than anything else. Yes, I think we can feel a bit of sympathy for Lawrence McKenzie. It's certainly not his fault that they've had all these shortages, although his critics would say that he failed to plan for the consequences of a pretty nasty winter. Thanks very much, David. And so to our final topic for today, BP. Shares in the UK oil company soared to a six-month high on Tuesday after reports that it might have to pay out less than expected in claims for the Gulf of Mexico spill. Until yesterday, BP's share price was still some 200p lower than it was before the April the 20th accident. Joining me in the studio now is one of the FT's Lex writers, Vincent Boland, to discuss the share price and other challenges facing Bob Dudley, BP's new chief executive. You've been looking at BP's share price quite closely in, in recent days and weeks, and it hasn't, despite yesterday's or Tuesday's move, it hasn't really moved much since the summer, and it's obviously that's quite a bit of a worry for Bob Dudley, isn't it? I think it is, actually, because it, it is indicative of the kind of limbo where BP now finds itself. The leak in the Gulf of Mexico has been brought to an end, and you could argue that the corporate crisis is over, but it's still in a legal limbo. There's a lot of uncertainty around what the ultimate cost of this accident is going to be. And I think the share price, the, the, the sort of flat share price reflects that. And it's an indication of the vulnerabilities that BP still faces, actually. I guess the, the sort of challenge for, for Bob Dudley is that he needs to come up with a sort of new strategy for BP that will entice an investor to think, OK, it's worth buying BP shares. Absolutely. And I, I think that what investors are waiting for is evidence of the extent to which Last year's Gulf of Mexico accident was a game changer for BP, first of all, but also for the industry more more widely. And I think that what BP has done so far suggests that perhaps even BP has not yet sort of fully digested the answer to that question. I think that markets and investors still don't quite know how to value the accident and the consequences of the accident and what they might be. BP still faces uh, obviously quite high potential liabilities. I mean, how big a problem are the liabilities in terms of valuing BP? I think that that's probably 
one of the fundamental reasons why there is such a difficulty in valuing BP right now. Um, I mean, you could argue that you know BP's valuation is what the market says it is, which is a share price of you know under five hundred pence and one that is essentially kind of going nowhere at the moment. I think that the, probably the chief reason why the share price spiked on Tuesday was because of what Kenneth Feinberg said, the man who's charged with administering the $20 billion fund that BP created. He suggested that the total cost of the claims might be under $10 billion, which suggests that presumably BP will get $10 billion back from that from that fund. If that is the case, and you could say that perhaps other liabilities will also be slightly less than than originally estimated. I think that's good news for BP. It's just that it's really hard to judge at the moment. In a sense, what, what you're looking at with BP is, is the company's raised quite a bit of money. Uh, it could end up with being comp- a company with a lot of cash on its balance sheet, uh, which it could invest in, in new exploration areas, which hopefully would strike lucky and, and find oil and gas. It will have a lot of cash. And if it doesn't have to pay out all of that in compensation and in legal liabilities, what does it do with it? That sort of suggests that BP continue, can continue on as it was before, which was as a sort of leading-edge exploration company, a very aggressive exploration company. But that's the paradox of BP right now, is that after the Gulf of Mexico accident, we don't quite know what, what it's supposed to look like. And I think that's the sort of kind of macro explanation for why the share price is, is essentially not doing anything at the moment. So in a sense, Bob Dudley needs to be more, he needs to be more aggressive in terms of exploration, as I say, whilst given that he needs to have more of a focus on safety. It's that sort of... I think so, yes. Uh, I mean, he has a very big task ahead on February the 1st when, you know, this, uh, the BP announces its results and his strategy review. And there's a lot riding on what he says and the impression he gives of what BP is going to become over the next couple of years. And, of course, also, you know, the latest assessment of the legal liabilities and the whole Gulf of Mexico fallout. It just highlights... I think, the extent to which investors are looking for guidance right now. They really need guidance on BP, and it has to come from Bob Dudley. Thank you very much. We'll come back to you, hopefully, um, after presentation on February the 1st. Thanks very much. And that's all we have time for today. All that's left is for me to thank my guests, Javi Blas, David Blair, and Vincent Boland. Energy Weekly was produced by LJ Filotrani. I'm Sylvia Pfeiffer. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.